This interview was brought to you by the Center for Leadership in Athletics at the University of Washington, an academic and research center within the College of Education. At the center, we believe in the power of sport to positively shape people and communities and are committed to developing effective leaders and leadership practices that maximize the positive educational impact of athletics. The center offers coach development opportunities for all levels of sport coaches, including a graduate degree program, the Excel Sports Coaching Certificate, and customized organizational trainings, all derived from the center's research, including the Ambitious Coaching Project. To learn more, visit uwcla.uw.edu. Welcome listeners. In this interview, we connected with Dr. Brian Geerty from the University of Denver. He has a unique background as a strength and conditioning coach, researcher, author, and professor. His scholarly work uses sociological and psychological theory to examine how coaches can enhance their practice and effectiveness. Our conversation kicked off by Dr. Geerty defining allyship and talking with us about how coaches can be allies for their athletes. We examine the difference between toxic versus healthy masculinity and the consequences that young male athletes can face when exposed to toxically masculine sport cultures. The underlying themes you'll hear throughout our conversation are how coaches use their power, as well as the role that coaches play in helping young athletes develop their identity, both in and outside of sport. Dr. Geerty helps us see the relationship between healthy identity development and mental health for the young people we're coaching. Thanks for joining us. From the University of Washington, I'm Marcia Daniel with the Center for Leadership in Athletics. Today, we have Dr. Brian Geerty with us, who is the founding and current director of the Master of Arts in Sport Coaching Program at the University of Denver, and is also a tenure-track professor for the program. Dr. Geerty has been a strength and conditioning and speed coach for youth, high school, collegiate, and professional athletes, including the University of Tennessee, the Cleveland Indians, and Purvis High School. He is, or is, are you still editor-in-chief for NSEA Coach? Uh, NSEA Coach, yep. Right, which is the National Strength and Conditioning Association's journal dedicated to the practice of coaching and is associate editor-in-chief for the Strength and Conditioning Journal. Dr. Geerty's research uses sociological and psychological theory to enhance effective and ethical coaching practice. Dr. Geerty, thank you for joining us today. Yep. You describe yourself as a, as a coach scholar. Tell us about that and what that means to you. Yeah. Usually, actually, in my classroom, too, we talk about it as, like, I use the, I reverse it, I go scholar coach, just because I, I don't know, I think it sounds better. <laughs> but, uh, you know, somebody, a coach uh, that's also a scholar, you know, in a way, it's like our psychology model here, too, uh, that I picked up from my colleagues, and that they go by a specific kind of model in education called the scholar practitioner model. So, in, in a similar way, I, I don't want to be just a coach or just a scholar. It indicates that we and myself included, work in an applied field. We tend not to think about basic research. And so it's somebody that is a scholar and a coach that's thinking, that's curious, that's researching, you know, all those kind of great adjectives that indicates that, you know, you're not just doing what works or you don't think about why it works. You have to kind of integrate the why, the what, the how, the when within a specific context. So that's kind of what I mean by being a a scholar coach. Well, last June, I heard you speak at the Female Athlete Conference in Boston on allyship, and you shared a great story on showing allyship for a female colleague. Can you, uh, well, first, can you define allyship for us? Yeah, I mean, the way that, and there's a few definitions that I've come across, but an ally 
Uh, and I was just at the Sociology of Sport Conference, the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport Conference last week, or NAS. And somebody there was saying, well, you know, here's why I think allyship is okay, but they wanted to advocate more of, I believe the word that they used was apprenticeship, apprentice. Um, and so like too, and what, why did they like that semantic meaning better and what did that mean to them? But with anyway, I mean, within this realm of allyship and, and apprenticeship or a supporter or a champion, et cetera, um, for me, it means somebody that is aware of uh, the production of power and how uh, power can produce things, it can oppress things, it creates ways that we understand uh, who we are and how people have opportunities. And so an ally understands and is aware of those things, but also takes action to re reduce their own privilege and to uplift other people. So they are active in changing power and social structures so others can have a greater opportunity. How can coaches foster cultures of allyship? Uh, you know, in a number of ways. And, and I was just uh, having a little back and forth on Twitter with a guy, you know, and, and sometimes we think uh, gloom and doom and, and we have no power and we can't do anything. And of course, we realize that that's not true. We're constantly influencing other people and we're being influenced as well. Uh, and we're, we're shaping as well as being shaped. So I, I would encourage coaches, one, to just think about, too, how can I help support other people? Does that mean interpersonally, one-on-one -on -one with an athlete or a team? You know, can I say something nice and uplifting and affirming to them? Can I uh, stop using language that is, you know, uh, degrading or marginalizing? Uh, you know, and, and that requires some reflective thought. It's, you've got to stop and challenge the way that you've been doing things and realize how the subtle, you know, jokes or insults, uh, just the nor the so-called normal way of coaching and practicing. You know, when we think of push-ups, you know, right? If I say girl push-ups, that's got a different meaning than a modified push-up. You know, and it's just a one little example of you know, being mindful of the language, the feedback, the cues that we can give somebody one-on-one -on -one or in a team setting. You know, within your community, you can be a community-engaged uh, practitioner or scholar, meaning that you could be trying to organize uh, greater opportunities for those that don't have as much. Uh, power economic uh, benefit, you know, by having scholarships on your team, by coaching for free, uh, by trying to do some fundraising. You know, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a more community oriented way. Mm -hmm. um, you can have, be an ally at the, at the, at the college or university or, athlete, or, or athletic program, a professional team in the sense of giving voice to people and, and bringing people in and actually listening and addressing the, their needs that they express and not assuming their needs and you could uh, change your hiring practices to seek out more uh, typically uh, disadvantaged or marginalized groups. So that way you literally change, uh, you know, these kind of uh, discrimination, you know, forms of discrimination and that people get a better, fairer shot. And it doesn't mean you, you, you have to uh, do everything that they want uh, or that they that they express that they need or their desires. And these are things you can think through, but it, it does mean being aware of these issues and taking action. And if you don't, it, it speaks to your own privilege and your own um, kind of, what did I say privilege again? It takes, it, it's your own privilege that you don't have to act on these things. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you want to create a more fair, just, equitable, caring world, you can't just know things, you have to act upon them too. 
Well, you, you've used the word power a few times. And so I want to ask you about one of your scholarly works titled Discipline and Punish in the Weight Room. And you examined how coaches control space, time, and even how athletes use their bodies. And you explored some of the unintended consequences of coaches exercising power. So what, what are some of those potential consequences? Yeah, so let me, let me back up and talk about that article called Discipline and Punish in the Weight Room. Um, and we actually have, a, that was, so that was in, uh, geez, I think like 2012 with uh, Dr. Joe Mills. And then I've got another piece that's impressed with Sociology Sport Journal with uh, Dr. Clayton Cucklick, who I work with here at the University of Denver. Discipline and Punish in the Weight Room is talking about what we call disciplinary practices. And that's the control of space, time, and the flow of bodies through the so-called effective or normal or everyday uh, coaching practices. So what that means is if you think about our power and the way that we move people around today, and we use sports, schools, and military as an example, there are often lines, rows, uh, there's a schedule, a clock, there's the planning that goes in in a lesson plan or a practice plan or a, a military operational plan uh, that people have to wear certain clothes at certain times. They have to move a certain way, hold their uh, pencil, hold their uh, lacrosse stick, or hold their uh, rifle a certain way. So all of these kind of little, little micro uh, ways of transforming and coaching and moving are what we call disciplinary practices. And there's also some subtle forms of punishment, right? Physical punishment, uh, degrading punishment, maybe a threaten, a loss of a job or scholarship. So all these are kind of disciplinary practices that shape uh, who we are. Um, and so in this article, we, uh, I give a, basically a story of myself as a strength conditioning coach at Tennessee and how I use these disciplinary practices. And, you know, you, you can't see that what you're doing is producing the problems. So that's one of the kind of key findings is realizing that you as a coach, in this case, are producing some of the problems that you're trying to solve. And you're not even able to see it because you're just thinking so rationally and you're trying to do the best you can and everything you think makes sense. And maybe you blame the athletes for being dumb or lazy or something like that. But what you don't realize is it could be the production, could be the use of these disciplinary practices that's producing the problems. Mm -hmm. So developing that awareness of um, a critique of what we call modern approaches or the enlightenment approaches or scientific approaches, you know, and, and developing a more meta understanding or a critical understanding of how these disciplinary practices themselves were created, you know, as a form of modern power. And by, and by modern, we just kind of mean in the last hundred years or so, you know, so it's a kind of current understanding of uh, why do we even do what we do nowadays? Uh, and, and so by understanding that, you can hopefully change something and at least be, so you're aware of it and then you can change something uh, based on this new understanding. Did you always have a heightened consciousness about power and use of power or were there, was there some particular, was there a mm -hmm. catalyst in your yeah. desire to do this research? Yep. So, you know, and I, I realized too, you had a, a question too about unintended or, or some of the potential consequence, consequences of the power. So yeah, you said, yeah, you're producing problems and specifically, like conflict in the coach-athlete relationship, injuries, lack of performance, you know, so this is another theoretical lens. It's another way to understand these issues. And, and for me, 
you know, I came uh, through graduate school and I, I had a typical kind of undergrad phys ed, exercise science, and we really didn't talk about power except for, you know, like servant leadership and, and um, empowering people. And it was very, you know, flowery or broad language, <laughs> you know, and, and it sounds good and, and you try to do that and you think you are. Uh, but but again, when you kind of dig a layer deeper, you're like, well, what does that really mean? You know, like, what does it mean to empower somebody? Are you really shifting power relations or are you just telling them what to do? And by so you think you're empowering their performance and empowering their success. But again, that relates to the problem of this whole thing is that you might be producing problems. Uh, you can see this in that recent case of, I believe it, it was her name. Maybe you remember too, Mary Kane, the mm, recent, yeah. recent runner. Yeah. All these so-called great coaches and sports psychologists and, you know, the support staff and, and everybody else said, you know, do more, do more, you know, um, uh, you know, lose weight, all these so-called things that they think are great. And maybe they've even got some scientific support uh, and it's producing a ton of problems. Mm-hmm. So and for me too. Yeah. So the undergraduate degree was just a basic foundation, but in grad school, I started studying cultural studies of education a bit more about critical theory. And so any critical theory approach uh, addresses issues of power. You know, who has power? To what extent do they mobilize or exercise that power? What does that power do? Who benefits from that power? You know, and kind of giving you a different theoretical language to understand the world that you live in, you know? And so uh, for me, another specific turning point was uh, actually at the same conference from last week, the NAS, Sociology of Sport Conference, in 2008, I went to that conference. And I met a professor, scholar, coach named Jim Dennison. And Jim Dennison has been probably the way well, he has been the leading uh, Foucault researcher in sport coaching. And so him and I had you know a, a meeting there for the first time and we were able to stay in touch. And he really kind of mentored me through and encouraged me to pursue this work and uh, happy to report, you know, geez, 11 years later. Uh, we're still we're still at it, and uh, you know both of us were presenting it again again last week, and you know what he's done in the last two years or so, and, and myself included, you know, is really kind of add to the literature by uh, doing this work and reporting our work with students and coaches uh, to go beyond identifying the problem, but really trying to kind of you know coach a little bit differently and try to shake things up, uh, and it's pretty novel approach, I think. On that note of implementation of some of these learnings, we have noticed in our coach development trainings like, that it's not uncommon to get pushback from coaches when we discourage the use of physical punishment. So that's, you know, that's one example of using power. And we have found like the studies show that that's not, that's not an effective way to do things, but we get pushback from coaches. Do you, have you received that same pushback when you teach coaches? Uh, to an extent. And I, I would wonder about the dynamics of that, right? Like, I'm uh, for, you know, for the viewers at home, I'm five foot 10, about 215 pounds, uh, you know, shaved head, goatee. You know, I, I kind of look the traditional, uh, what we call hegemonic masculine male. <laughs> um, I'm a full strength coach and played college football and this and that. And so I, I think at least in my face here, Marshall, right, people are probably uh, less inclined to challenge the things that I say. When we do the workshops and we've done a, a variety of things and we teach it to our students, you know, and this is why I'm excited about the current work, because we're talking more, though, about the conditions for learning and the student or coach's experience, understanding and then doing this work. And, and then you realize that, you know, right, like like other uh, research, behavior change is hard. 
people don't want to assume that what they've been doing is maybe less effective or part of the problem. Uh, you know, when you when you can just keep doing the same thing and generally get the same results, you might be happy with that. It's sufficient. And so when you really want to change things up and alter the, 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 you know, the flow of your practice and the timing of your practice and, you know, just change the overall feeling of your practice and move in a different way, you know, that can be scary because it's not predictable. And we know that life isn't predictable at times. But again, this kind of illustrates the divide in the, in the scientific understanding here is that, you know, this positivistic science, we call it the, the experimental designs, the statistics, the laboratory research, the translational research from lab to the practice field, all of that is built on the assumption of prediction and control. And I would even argue that that in a way is kind of funny and it's ironic because that's what we're start we're, we're trying to critique is that the, the idea of always trying to predict and control things is exactly part of the problem. Well, that makes sense, especially in a sport landscape where there are a lot of un uncontrollable variables, especially particularly during competition. Yeah, so I mean, right, it's just a way of how do you frame that to somebody? And you know, right, that's, I think, more of an instructional piece. Like, how do you frame that? Like, hey, you know, if you know that your practice or your competitions are uh, inherently unpredictable at times, how do you prepare an athlete for that? Oh, you know, use imagery or, or oh, you know, well, we, we talk about that. Well, what, what, do you practice that, though? Do you actually practice that unpredictability and make instead of your practice being the same old just drills and lines and routines? Can you practice that dynamic over time uh, and, and get them you know, physiologically, psychologically, culturally adapted and in tune to that to make great decisions and be more fluid and adaptable you know, when they when they need to be? So are, are you promoting giving giving athletes more um, control over decision making, shared decision making? Yeah, it's certainly a possibility, you know, and, and where you go with this work, I think, is hard to put your finger down because it's not very um, in line with our with our thinking on this, meaning that we can't be so prescriptive. Right? We, we, we're not offering a solution because we don't think a clear cut solution always exists. So there's the constant need to critique and experiment and to explore different ways. I mean, really, that's the beauty about sport, too, is that you're, so we think, constantly trying to out-skill, out-maneuver your opponent or yourself. And so that kind of, that means you're constantly trying to manipulate training factors, mm -hmm. if you like that language. So in terms of some decision-making, yeah, absolutely. Uh, other times, it may require less decision-making. You know, less uh, control, less telling people what to do, um, and, and, and letting them just engage in the feeling and the flow of things. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things we were talking about last week. If, if you're constantly bombarded with stuff to think about and decisions to make, sometimes that's paralyzing. Right. You know, I, I know a, a sociologist of my, a friend of mine who was big into a, a group-based interval, you know, workout program. And I said, I, I teased her. I said, you know, you're, you love this stuff. You're a docile body. You know, you just come over here and you get told what to do and you love it. She's like, I do. I make decisions all day. I make decisions all day. You know, she was a, a top administrator. And uh, she said, I just, I'm just so tired. And I, I just get to come here and I get told what to do. I don't care. And I'm just like, this is so great. You know, right? Like, it's really interesting that people are kind of like in decision fatigue. Mm -hmm. So some people need that. Other people don't, you know, but right, it, it's not a, this is the way or this has to be the way it's okay. Well, under various conditions, you know, people need different things.
Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. certainly uh, different options. And when I think about like football practice, okay. There's so many times of practice where people are standing around in lines, they're waiting for somebody else to go or the organization of practice is always in blocks of five minutes or 10 minutes. And it's the same drills, basically. Maybe there's a little bit of progression, you know, from week to week, but not everybody needs the same drills or the same time spent on certain things. What if they had, you know, a 10 minute actual individual period where they actually worked on their individual needs? I I don't see a lot of people doing that. So, you know, the idea that we're promoting in this way and it's, and I, uh, I love it. It's also very unsatisfying is, is it's, it's a constant critical thinking as a coach and uh, exploring this and th- realizing that you're able to do things, different things differently. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I, when I, right. And we all do this and without knowing this theoretical work and, and Foucault, the work of Michel Foucault and disciplinary practices, right. We're all at times, I think, critiquing the world and, but we, you know, this offers us greater now that we're, that we're publishing this work and sharing it more and more. Um, I'm thinking about when I was coaching in Tennessee, I used to work with our uh, freshman football players and we used to do at times in the weight room, uh, random practice, you know, so each rep, uh, or I'm sorry, each set would be a different exercise. And people in strength condition coaches, they probably had some motor learning training and they understand random practice, but nobody does it. Mm-hmm. Why not? Right. I mean, let, let's talk about that. You know, the, the, the integration of this way of thinking with motor learning. You know, there's a lot of possibilities there. Similarly, I would do uh, pitching uh, drills with our, our baseball team, with our pitchers. And I would put out a variety of obstacles. and I would make things challenging. Uh, I would put out cones or just obstacles to run around. And it wasn't to get them hurt or to be cute in the training or to really enhance their speed or agility. But, you know, mentally disrupt that space to make it more challenging to when they got in the game, they didn't panic, they didn't overreact, you know, and, and I didn't have to do it from a mental skill sense and just talk about it or use imagery to talk about it. We could experientially go do it out on the field. Uh-huh. I want to switch gears a little bit. There's so many questions we have for you. You've spent much of your career as a strength and condition, conditioning coach of men's teams. And so you spent a lot of time in spaces that would typically be described as masculine how would you define healthy masculinity? Yeah. So, I mean, it comes in contrast to so-called, you know, usually either hegemonic or toxic masculinity. Um, and all that would be identifying that men and masculinity are traditionally defined as you know, a variety of things, but not sharing their emotions. Um, it's okay to be emotional about your sport and passionate, but right, we would never equate that with being soft or, out of control of your emotions, uh, like we would women. Um, what else? So that would be violent or aggressive. Usually, um, you know, you have to be a man, a man up, uh, stand up for yourself. Uh, you have to search yourself, which often means then you don't consider other people or their emotions, or you don't have empathy, uh, that you think being a strong leader means being decisive at the expense of perhaps interpersonal relationships, uh, mental health and well-being of your athletes or your employees, you know, et cetera. So, you know, on the continuum of masculinity, you know, uh, healthy masculinity would be more positive and equal, better, healthier outcomes for health, well-being, your body, your physical body. Uh, so doing things where you're able to talk about 
how you're thinking, how you're feeling, how you're responding, uh, coaching in such a way that you're aware of that and you're not uh, contributing to a, a toxic environment. You know, you're not encouraging boys or men to disregard their bodies or their feelings. You're not uh, encouraging them to, you know, be violent and, and physically harm their and try to injure their opponent. Uh, and you're not you're encouraging them to take that same attitude off the field, you know, and to use other people uh, and to treat other people as objects in a way um, and send those kind of messages. So healthy masculinity would do the opposite or, you know, move further away from that kind of work and get on a healthier continuum. Um, you know, I can think of one example too real quick would be when I was coaching high school, actually down in Mississippi, you know, I talked to the guys one day before we worked out that my mother had died when I was 13 and I found the gym about the same time and used the gym as a coping mechanism. You know, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I did years later that going to the gym two hours, you know, four days a week probably kept me out of trouble mm. and was a really a, a beneficial place for me to be productive and, you know, stay out of trouble and stay uh, off the streets or hanging out at my friend's house doing stuff we shouldn't be doing. Uh, so we try to talk about, you know, those mistakes and uh, making better choices and, and realizing how, you know, talking about that in that space is kind of unusual. I never had a coach talk to me about, you know, death or the death of their mother or something like that. So openly processing those emotions and deciding on a more productive way, what do you want to do with that now um, is, is a way to positively have healthy masculinity, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of questions regarding mental health since, you know, that's a big issue for young people now. Um, what can some of the consequences be for young male athletes if they're in a, in a culture that is more um, along that end of the spectrum that you just, when you described toxic masculinity? So outcomes from the toxic masculinity? Yeah, for young male athletes. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, drug abuse and violence are big ones that if you can't cope with and live with uh, the suffering that we all experience, you might be more apt to turn to drugs and alcohol, substance abuse. Um, I can, again, you know, I can think of when I dislocated my shoulder in college and I, my, my, that was the end of my sophomore year. Uh, and I felt a loss of identity, a loss from my teammates, you know, I was the first uh, severe injury I ever experienced. And I subsequently for the next couple of months probably drank more beer than I, ever have in that stretch of time in my life. Um, that's not a great um, outcome. You know, that's not a healthy way of uh, dealing with a, a injury or a, a trauma that you suffer. Uh, so substance abuse, that, um, you know, over identification, you know, when you're a man and that's the only thing you are, you're an athlete and that's the only thing you are. If you don't have more skills, and see yourself as, uh, I think, uh, when I just kind of, I saw the word uh, protean today came across as a, I get an email every day with different words, you know, and, and vocabulary words, because I'm not that strong. And so uh, P-R-O-T-E-A-N, you know, the protean uh, superhero, somebody that can change and morph, right? So uh, if you don't, if, if you have over-identification in your role, right, then you can, your grades could suffer, you know, loss of employment or your job prospects, you know, you don't see yourself in a very high light. Uh, I don't see myself advancing in my career or even having a career. You know, maybe I'm just a gas station worker or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a manual labor blue collar type of person. And that's uh, where they see themselves. 
-hmm. And not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but the shutting down of possibilities like the protean being a protean hero, you know, that would be a, a greater uh, skill set. Um, you know, physically, I'm trying to think of physically, physically, toxic masculinity, you know, right emphasizes sometimes unhealthy behaviors, you know, gaining weight for sport, um, uh, trying to gain weight quickly, uh, maybe taking drugs like steroids and other things to try to get bigger. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I tell you what, now, nowadays, boy, I go to the gym, I go to a big box gym nearby. And I've never seen so many 40 plus year olds that look like they're 200 plus pounds, maybe 230 plus, you know, and about 10% or less body fat. And they don't train too hard, you know. So I think, again, that, you know, the idea that you have to be big and muscular uh, and, and tough, right, as a, as a male. And, you know, that's your that's your identity. Like that is not healthy stuff um, long term for you and even short term. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, other scholarly works of yours examine the intersection among sport coaching, mental health, and social identity. So a little more on this, the identity piece. Um, many of our listeners are coaching young athletes who are in a particularly formable life stage where their physical and emotional selves and, of course, their identity is being shaped. So what do you want? What should coaches think about with regard to our coaching practice and how we influence the social identity and mental health of the athletes we're working with? Um, my one thing on that is uh, be very concise then is and both and you know both. you're not either or you can be and both you know you can be multiple things and specifically what we need is more coaches encouraging athletes to be young athletes to be more to not just be an athlete but to be or a football player for example but to be a football player a basketball player a baseball player a soccer player you know a figure skater a gymnast, and I purposely then am putting in sports that are traditionally, we think in the U.S. at least, less masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need coaches to help athletes see themselves as uh, students and scholars, people that study things off the field and have other interests, perhaps as artists, uh, poets, uh, engineers. Uh, we need to encourage them to, and we need to do better with transitions out of sport. Most of them are not going to play in college or beyond. And even if they can, and we all hear the stories of pro athletes either dying very early, going bankrupt, et cetera, and right, we can probably go back and trace that to their childhood when they had a very limited view of themselves and their identities. So for your mental health, for your identity, identities, we should say, for your physical, emotional, spiritual well-being, to become a more uh, holistic, a more critical person engaged in society, or we'll say maybe a truly educated person, uh, not just football player, not just basketball player. We are limiting people's and young people's uh, view of the world and how they see themselves and what they could do. Uh, And in reality, we know that as they age and get older, they're going to have to change and morph and get into so many different situations and have such diverse skill set that you know, right? If, if sports is going to build character, it, it should build characters in the sense of their identities, not just work hard, you know, do your job. That is not a great, well-rounded message to send to somebody. That's, that's the message you send to somebody that you want to control and to tell them what to do for the rest of their lives. And that was, both. Pretty, that was pretty, I like that one. That's pretty good on that one. <laughs> uh, wow. That's, 
um, you've given us some really different content and different things to think about, which we, we appreciate. Um, thank you so much for your time and for challenging the way that the way we think. I mean, having read a lot of your scholarly works over the last few weeks, I, I, in, I mean this in the very best way possible, but I would end the day feeling like my brain feeling really tired, which was great. <laughs> we keep processing it. Um, and so thank you for pushing the way that we think about things and think about um, our coaching practice. I want to ask you one last question uh, about your own evolution as a coach scholar, if that's okay with you. Sure. You contributed a great blog series for Volt Athletics in which you wrote, we need to relearn our defensiveness to new ideas. Openness and the ability to hold multiple views is a sign of a more developed consciousness. So to send us on our way today, um, can you share with us an area relevant to coaching in which you found that your own views have shifted or evolved over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, in a way, too, this comes from the work I mean, doing work with Foucault now over the last several years. Um, I've written it. We have a book coming out this fall with Dr. Bettina Callery. We edited a book uh, called, oh, geez, it's like Coach Education and Development and Instructional Strategies. And in that book, I co-wrote a chapter on white privilege in sport coaching and in this coaching research and what we should do about it. You know, that is an article or a book chapter that, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have even thought about writing. And when I was in graduate school, I would have read something like that and been like, you know, yeah, like, huh, there's an interesting idea here. And then I spend, you know, 12 years of my life reading and trying to understand it more deeply. And then think about the audience that I'm talking to, because even when you say something like that, it brings up a lot of uh, questions and, and potential defensive reactions. So how can I write, just like what you just said, is how can I write in such a way that maybe people are open and curious and will engage uh, rather than be defensive or hostile or guilty or immediately just shut down? So on, on my end, and I'll tie it into what you just said too, is that you know when I write stuff like that, and then, then the, in the recent piece with Dr. Kucklick and Sociology Sport Journal, you know the writing on my end hurts. It hurts me in the sense of, I'm, I'm, you know, in pain and agony trying to figure out the flow, the word choice, um, the reader's potential reaction, uh, being authentic to myself and the messages that I want to communicate. Uh, so that's kind of how I've shifted definitely in the last several years. And I'm really excited to explore more about, you know, difference and diversity in sport and how coaches can help sport really work for the athletes they coach, their communities in, in a more uh, accepting, in a, in a broader way uh, where we get more people on board and then we are able to use a, a whole toolkit of things to help some coach somebody rather than, you know, just the same old, same old that we, if you've been coaching now for 10 years or you ever coached your whole life, like you already know that stuff. But how mm -hmm. can we really kind of offer somebody some, some new ways of thinking and tools and you know, refocus on the important things like really helping young people and, and adults and everybody throughout their lifetime, uh, you know, benefit from sport. I mean, that's, that's a really great grinding question for us to, to probably close on. What's the best way for people to follow your work? Yeah, I mean, I'm on all these social media. Yep, uh, Twitter and Instagram are just at Dr. Geerty. It's G-E-A-R-I-T-Y. Um, you know, my, anybody can look up my public, pro, public profile. Um, the university here, Denver's got a, a portfolio program page where I try to occasionally update that. And then uh, the university website here has got my CV. Uh, obviously, if you're on Google Scholar, you can give somebody a follow. 
Um, and then I did just start at, I haven't done a whole lot with it yet just cause I'm, it's, you know, it's a, it's a job in itself, but I did start a public uh, coaching profile uh, page on Facebook just with my name, Brian Garrity. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this work you do and making us all better. And um, thanks for your time today. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Marshall, for reaching out. And then, you know, the, the time and obviously the thoughtfulness that you put into preparing and the questions uh, is evident. And I, at least I know that and I can appreciate that. So thank you.